0: The Corum Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture is Philippians chapter one, verses three through 11. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. The word of God for the people of God.
1: All right. Well, my name is Bob, and I am one of the pastors here. Um, First thing I'm going to do is just ask your grace. The uh, fall allergies kicked in yesterday. Then I took some medicine for the allergies this morning. I think that made things worse instead of better. So I'm gonna use this handheld microphone so that I can, you know, if I need to like cough or something, because you don't want to hear that in a microphone. No one wants to hear someone sneeze into a microphone or anything like that. So I'm gonna spare you from that. Plus, we can do fun things like audience participation with them. I might just start wandering around and let you guys say some things. We might have some fun here today. Uh we are preaching our way through the New Testament book of Philippians. And so, Aaron kicked that off last week. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn there. Maybe you just did as we were having those scriptures read. If you're using the Bible under your seat, it's page 921, is where you'll find Philippians. Uh, I had the joy last Saturday of teaching church history to the Equip students. Equip is our theological training program that we have here, and so taught a little church history course for them last Saturday. And I, every time I teach church history, I mentioned that the way I learned history as a high school student at Miller North High School was this, what do I need to know for the test? You guys relate? I didn't actually learn history, I was just like what do I need to know to pass the test? I took that data in, I regurgitated it for the test and then I forgot everything. And then later on in life, I learned that actually history is the backbone of all other knowledge, and that if you understand sort of like the timeline of history, then obviously you can fit literature and science and philosophy and all these other things along that timeline, because of course all of those things developed, and all of them have a history. And so that taught me, you know what, when you're trying to learn stuff, it's helpful to pay attention to what the major concepts are that help you make sense of things, and I wish I had known that back in high school, but I had to learn it. The hard way, and so as we're trying to understand the Bible, as we're coming to the scriptures and trying to understand what God has to say to us in Scripture, one of the things that can be really helpful is just understanding some of the meta themes, some of the big ideas in the Bible, some of the major concepts that Scripture talks about. So that as we see them in the scriptures, we begin to go, oh, "Yeah, I know that's a major category." And one of those concepts, one of those contrasts in Scripture that's very important is the contrast between grace and works. These are sort of two categories, uh, two ways of relating to God, you might say. Uh, you see these contrasted, for instance, in 2 Timothy 1.9, where it says God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. Or you see it in Ephesians 2.8 and 9, where we read, By grace you have been saved through faith, and it is the, this is the gift of God, not a result of works. So you see Scripture draw this contrast frequently between grace and works, and it's important, and it's a foundational understanding. It's a foundational thing we need to understand to make sense of what the Bible is saying to us. Works is the Bible's shorthand for all the ways we try to earn favor with God through our doing. Works says if I do X God will do Y, or God should do Y, or I'm doing X so that I can get God to do Y. It's, it's my effort, my work, my obedience that gains me favor with God. At the heart, this is kind of a transactional way of relating to God. It's conditional. I have to keep up my end. God has to keep up God's end. That's what the Bible has in mind when it speaks of works. It's all the ways we try to earn God's favor through our doing, our achieving. Grace on the other hand is the Bible's term for God's unmerited favor. God's free and generous kindness toward undeserving people. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, what we haven't earned, what we couldn't possibly work for. Grace is the language of gift, not obligation. And the contrast between grace and works is one of the most important distinctions in the Bible, and one of the most important distinctions for our lives. It's the difference between burden and freedom. It's the difference between despair and joy. It's the difference between dead religion and living faith. And it's a distinction that's crucial to our understanding of the letter to the Philippians. As Aaron reminded us last week, The letter we're reading here to the Philippians is a real letter written to real Christians just like you, living in the first century in a real city called Philippi. Aaron showed you some pictures of the ruins of Philippi last week. This is a real place in the world. So it's important for us to remember, these are real people like us receiving a letter, helping them to understand God and what God is doing in the world. And as is common in Paul's letters, it begins with a greeting. And the greeting is kind of that part, if you read the Bible or read the New Testament epistles especially, the greeting you can kind of take for granted. Like a lot of the greetings are similar, you know, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord. So you're like, yeah, okay, well, let's get to the good stuff. Yeah, the greeting, the greeting. Okay, hi, nice to see you. Nice to hear from you. What are are we going to get to next? But I want to show you the greeting in Philippians is actually one of the most challenging things in the entire book. I want you to look at it with me. Look at verse three, and I want you to notice how Paul speaks to these Christians at Philippi. Verse three I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Not some, but all. Verse four always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. He's saying, Every time I pray for you, it's joyful. And then down to verse seven. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. Every one of you, he says, is dear to me. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, verse 8. So I want you to notice Paul's indiscriminate, unfettered affection for the people he's writing to. Just his overflowing affection and appreciation and joy toward them. And then I want you to ask, could you write that? Like, do you feel that way about the Christians in your life? I'm sure there are some you feel that way about, but let's be honest. Is it not true that there are a few people in your life, maybe even in this room, that not only do you not yearn for them with the affection of Christ Jesus, but maybe you're just putting up with them, or maybe you do your best to kind of avoid them, Or maybe you've had some conflict with them and we just sort of don't really relate very well anymore. Are there people in your life that when you pray for them, it's not with joy. In fact, if you're honest, you really don't pray for them very much. See what I mean about this introduction being challenging? Like as we read this, I just think we have to ask the question, do I feel this way about the Christians in my life? Could I write this? Could I speak this way about God's people? See, for all of our talk about how the gospel changes everything, I wonder if our life together actually shows the impact of the gospel in our relationships. What would it take for us to be able to say to one another, I thank God every time I remember you. In every prayer I have for you, it's always with joy. I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. What would it take for there to be such deep affection and joy and gratitude for one another among us that the city around us would have to say, those Christians have a kind of community, a kind of affection, a kind of love for each other that you can't find anywhere else. This morning, that's what the Spirit of God wants to call us to. And the path there is actually surprisingly simple. When Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, when he says, I make every prayer for you with joy, when he says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, the simple thing he's expressing in all of that language is gratitude. He is grateful, thankful for these human beings. Here's the simple truth that this text shows us, and I want to drive into your thinking this morning. Grace leads to gratitude. Grace leads to gratitude. That's the simple truth that is changing Paul's life and is going to change your life, and that actually changes how we think and how we relate, and how our lives operate. I want to show you the connection this morning between grace and gratitude. Show you how it is that Paul's gratitude for these human beings in real Philippi in the first century is rooted in his understanding of grace. So we've already seen the gratitude he expresses. We looked at it briefly in all those verses. Let's look now at what it's rooted in. Look with me at verse 3 of Philippians 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Paul writes, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So the gospel has created a partnership or a fellowship or a communion between Paul and these Christians in Philippi. You've probably experienced this. This is the kind of thing you feel when you're in a different city and you go to a church and you find that the people there love the gospel and they love Jesus and they love the Bible. And you feel like, man, these are my kind of people. These are gospel people. This feels like I'm at home. That's gospel partnership. Marcus Bachmule, who's a New Testament scholar, reminds us of this. The term gospel designates both both the message of redemption in Christ and God's power at work in the proclamation of that message. It's both the message and God's power at work through the proclamation of the message. So in other words, to have partnership in the gospel is to share a love for the message of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and also to share a love for how that message changes people the power that message has as it goes forward and affects real people and changes their lives. To use the language Dusty used a few minutes ago, it's it's gospel doctrine and gospel culture. It's gospel proclamation and gospel transformation. That's what partnership in the gospel embraces. As the message of the gospel is proclaimed, it does something. And the question is, why does it do something? Why does it have power? Why does God's power go out through the gospel? What is it about the gospel that has this power to it? Well, it's quite simply this. The gospel is a proclamation or a message of grace. Look at the next verse, verse 6. This is one of the best verses in the entire book of Philippians. It's one of the core promises in the New Testament. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, who began a good work in you? God did, right? And who's going to bring it to completion? God is. That's the essence of grace. The gospel is not a message of you do X so that God will do Y. Rather, the gospel is the good news that God has started something in you, and God is going to finish what he started in you. And so from beginning to end, the person working in you is God. He is the one at work. That's the good news of grace. It's not you changing yourself. It's God changing you from the inside out. Now listen, you can change yourself, right? Like we've all done it. You can go on a diet. You can start working out, you can buy some new clothes, you can get a different job. There's a lot of changes you can make in your life that really do change important things about you. But all of those things that we tend to try to do to bring change are all outside in. Grace works in the opposite direction. Grace works from the inside out. Grace is God at work in you, changing you, and that work in you then manifests itself in your outward actions and behaviors and dispositions. Paul's confidence is that the God who began working in you is going to finish what he started, and that's good news. Bachmuel again says this. This is a good quote. I just had to throw it in here. Paul's confidence is not in the Christianity of the Christians, but in the godness of God. I just like that quote. His confidence is in the godness of God. That's That's why Paul can say, I am sure that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. See, if you are the one who began a good work in you, how much confidence do we have that you're going to bring it to completion? I mean, how many things have you started and not finished in your life? Do we have a lot of confidence that if you began a good work, it's going to get done? Probably not. But see, if God began the work in you, and if God always finishes what he started and he always brings to completion the work that he's doing then you can have a lot of confidence of what God is doing. Notice also the time references in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 speaks of the first day when their partnership in the gospel began and verse 6 speaks of the day of Jesus Christ. So the life of a Christian is lived between two time horizons. The first day when God began a good work in you and the day of Jesus Christ when he's going to bring that work to completion. So I want to think for a minute with you about the first day when the grace of God first breaks into your life. Let's think about what that day was like. Some of you remember that day. For some of you it wasn't very long ago. For others of you maybe it was quite a while ago. But think about that first day when the message of grace changed you. When you remember hearing and responding to the good news of grace. Here's how that first day usually works. You're going along living your life, assuming, as people do, that if there is a God, God rewards human beings for doing the right thing. If I do X, God will do Y. And so I'm going along living my life, and if good things are happening in my life, of course, I get the credit for that because I'm doing the right things. And if things aren't going so well in my life, God gets the blame for that because, of course, he's not fulfilling his end of the bargain because this is how works works, right? This is how our minds work. If if it's working out good, it's because I'm doing it. If it's working out bad, God's not holding up his end of the bargain. So you're living in this transactional way toward God. Maybe you're bitter toward God. Maybe you're angry with God. Maybe you're ignoring God. Or maybe you feel like you're really living a good life and God owes you a lot of stuff. But then at some point in that way of relating to reality... Someone proclaims to you the message of the gospel, the good news that before you did anything, good or bad, God sent His Son into the world as a free gift, that Jesus Christ went willingly to the cross to die in the place of sinners and to rise from the dead, And that Jesus didn't do that in response to anything you did or didn't do, but sheerly out of the kindness and goodness of his own love. That your works didn't play any part in it. And so you can't make demands of God because God already gave his son for you before you even did anything. And your works can't add or subtract from what Jesus has done because he did it all without consulting you anyway. And so you hear this message of radical grace, of just, you know what? God has given his son for sinners apart from anything you've done. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You didn't achieve it. It's just grace. And that message of radical grace does something in you. It humbles you. It softens you. You begin to see how different it is from relating to God based on what you've done. And at some point in faith, you accept the gracious gift that God offers, His Son given to you and for you. And suddenly, all your attempts to earn God's favor and make God owe you something seem really foolish and silly because they're so much less amazing and less powerful and less majestic than the good news of grace. That's the first day of your partnership in the gospel. When that message lands in your lap and changes you, it changes you. Like something is different on that day, and you realize, wow, this is really, really good news. And you become a partner in this gospel of grace, and Some of you can remember that day in your life. Maybe it was in this room. Maybe it was in a church somewhere. Maybe it was in a conversation with a friend. Maybe it was as a kid being taught the gospel by your parents. Maybe it was in the most random, unexpected place you could ever imagine. But you know where you were when that message of grace landed on you. You know the first day of your partnership in the gospel. and In fact, for some of you, that first day is going to be today. Because it's possible for you to have been going to church your whole life but have never understood the grace of God. And now hearing this message and this news and this proclamation from the book of Philippians, maybe today, is the first day for you of realizing, oh, I've been relating to God all wrong. It's, it's grace. It's He who's going to begin this good work in me and bring it to completion. Now, look at verse 7 with me. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, Paul says, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Or as your footnotes may say, you have fellowship with me in grace. You have koinonia with me in grace. This, friends, is why... Grace leads to gratitude. You're about to see how grace works and why it leads to gratitude. Remember who's writing, okay? This is the Apostle Paul. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. If there ever was a superstar Christian, a pro-level Christian, a first-class Christian, it was the Apostle Paul. I mean, just honestly, if we can just speak honestly, he's done more for God than you have. He just has. He's led more people to Christ. He's baptized more people. He's planted more churches. He's been in more suffering and hardship for Jesus than you have. He's just done more than you for God. But I want you to notice how he talks about us. He says, you all, you are all partakers with me of grace. You catch that? You're all partakers with me of the same grace. The ground is level. At the foot of the cross, there's no depth chart, there's no pecking order, there's no platinum membership and regular membership. It's just the same grace for you and for me and for Paul and for the Christians in Philippi. He says, you're all partakers with me of grace. And friends, this is what the Lord's table symbolizes so beautifully, right? This is why the Reformers called the communion table, a sermon for your eyes rather than for your ears. Because when we come to the table, we all partake together of the same loaf. We all come hungry and Christ feeds us. We come empty and Christ fills us. We come having nothing and receiving from Him all that we need. We are all partakers together of the same grace. And when you grasp that, listen to me, it leads to gratitude. There's no way it can't lead to gratitude. Here's why. Because anytime you hold someone at arm's length, anytime you look down on someone, anytime you distance yourself from someone, what you're saying in effect is, I am better and that person is worse. Or when you're driven by shame, I'm worse and that person is better. So it could go either way. It can be I'm better than them or it can be I'm not as good as them. But either way, I'm making comparisons, right? I'm higher or lower, better or worse than this person over here. And don't you see the only way you can make that kind of comparison is if you base it on works. If we're basing it on I've achieved something that they haven't or they've achieved something that I haven't. But friends, listen, grace obliterates comparison, If we're all partakers of the same grace, there's no comparison. There's no greater than, less than, more deserving, less deserving, better Christian, worse Christian. We are all dead people who've been brought to life. We're all lost people who have been found. We're all blind people who can now see. That's why Paul can say, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because we're just all partakers of the same grace. In every prayer for you, I'm full of joy because I know we're just all partakers of the same grace. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus because isn't his grace good? Grace leads to gratitude. If you really understand grace, comparison melts away. So, why should you be grateful for every other Christian you encounter Why should you find yourself able to speak as Paul does with these glowing turns of affection for other Christians, no matter their faults or your faults? You should be able to speak that way because they are a partaker with you of grace. We all partake of the same grace together. So, let's go back to where we began for a minute. Who are the Christians in your life that you tend to avoid? Who in this room or in your life do you tend to compare yourself to? Who do you tend to relate to based on works? Here's what I've done or haven't done compared to what they've done or haven't done. Where is there distance in your relationships that really at its root is a lack of gratitude? Christ invites us this morning to set aside the scorecard of works. And instead to be amazed and humbled and softened by grace. To be full of gratitude. Because that's where grace leads us. We've seen how grace leads to gratitude in our relationships with one another. We've seen how grace leads Paul to have such gratitude for these people he's writing to. He says, I just thank God every time I think of you. But quickly, at the end of this passage, I want you to see grace leads to gratitude in our relationship with God as well. Look at verse 9. And it is my prayer, writes Paul, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So here's the question. How do you become filled with the fruit of righteousness? How can you have a conscience that's pure and blameless for the day of Christ? Well, can't you see it's right there in verse 9? These things happen as your love abounds more and more. The more you love God, the more you want to live a life that pleases God. It's love for God that leads to virtue and righteousness and obedience and holiness and transformation. And what awakens that kind of love for God? Gratitude. You won't love a God who makes you work hard to earn his favor. You can't help but love a God who freely gives His Son in your place. Grace leads to gratitude, leads to love, leads to obedience and joy and righteousness and freedom. This is how the gospel works. This is how grace changes us. Ask yourself this simple question. Why do you obey God? The gospel answer is, because I love him. The works answer is, so he'll favor me. Do you see the difference? One is an obedience that flows out of love, driven by gratitude and grace. One is an obedience that flows out of duty, driven by selfishness. They're completely different paths. So to go back to where we started, Philippians is a book of grace. The gospel is a message of grace. The Bible is a book that proclaims to us that God is a God of grace. And grace is gift, and it's generosity that you're invited to receive and rest in. That's something dramatically different then works and it brings about a totally different kind of result and it builds a totally different kind of community. So friends, let's be a people of grace. Let's be a people moved to deeper gratitude for one another out of an understanding that we're all partakers of grace together. Let's examine our hearts for the places where there's comparison or distance. Let's bring those places to the Lord and invite him to humble us more deeply by his grace so that we might be filled with gratitude. Let's thank God this morning for his grace, and let's come to his table to partake of grace together, sharing in one loaf, coming empty-handed to be filled with him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you who have begun a good work in your people will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the deep confidence that gives us, not in ourselves, but in you. Thanks for the radical grace that you have made available to us and that we have the joy of partaking in together. So would you move us more deeply to be humbled by your grace toward us, Would you awaken deeper gratitude toward you and toward one another? Would you renew in us a joy in the gracious gift of salvation? And would you help us be a people moved by your grace to live lives of overflowing gratitude? As we come to your table now, we ask that you would give us deep joy as we come remembering our need, as we become empty-handed, acknowledging only what we don't bring, that we might be filled with your goodness, your kindness, and your provision. We pray this for our good and your glory. Amen.